Matthew chapter 27. We're going to start at verse 15. Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon by name, And they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among them by casting lots. They then sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. 
And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, that's 12 o'clock noon, by the way, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemme sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up a spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. Let me pray. Lord, we... Don't even know. Can't even possibly comprehend. A God. That would choose in his eternal counsel to make this the center point of history. That you would create a people who would sin And who would need a savior. And that you would humiliate your son. To the point of death. On a cross. That your perfect. Holy eternal son. Would cry out in our place. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? Lord, help us to understand. Help us to feel. Lord, help us to know how central Jesus is to everything. Help us to be people who, like Paul, boasted only in the cross. Help us to be about Jesus and Him crucified. 
in your name. Amen. Well, the cross is the clearest demonstration of the judgment and the grace of God in the history of the world. It is at the cross that God demonstrated his just wrath against the horrific nature of our sin. And it is at the cross that God showed the immense love and grace that he has for his people. He showed both of those things at the cross. The cross is the most offensive and most beautiful scene in human history. The cross is why human history occurred at all. So often this event, this act of God at the cross is seen as kind of a plan B, isn't it? It is seen as something God did, as if God didn't want to do this, but he had to. His hand was forced by our sin. It is true that the cross is a response to our sin. That is true. However, it is also true, in fact, preeminently or ultimately true, that God decreed history, all of history, for the purpose of crucifying his son so that we would stand before him for all eternity and sing what? The song. What is it? What is it? Holy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. That's what it's all about. From the beginning until now, until the end, and for all eternity, so that we will sing that song. God decreed the cross for the praise of his glorious grace. God wanted all of history and all eternity to be centered on singing the song of his son, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. So when we talk about the kingdom of God being God's people, as we have been in this series, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. When we talk about that, this is the point at which it all culminates. This is the center of it. It's ultimately a discussion about the king of this kingdom. It's all about Jesus. The whole of the Old Testament anticipates the coming of this king. And the whole of the New Testament reflects on the fulfillment of that. And tells us that all of eternity will reflect on that. This king, this Jesus, this savior, this God man, this redeemer is the center. He is the center of all of it. All of it. I have to admit to you though. We so often live as if he's less than what he is, don't we? As if he's not central, 
not our king, not our savior, not our treasure. We live as if our plans or our families or our comforts or our opinions or some set of principles are central. I'll I'll give you an example. My own anxiety. For the last few days, I have been anxious. I, I don't know if you guys get anxiety. I never get anxiety. And I have anxiety in my gut. You guys know what I mean by that? I just feel it in there. And I can't get over it. And I go, Lord, why do I'm so anxious? Why am I so anxious? I know why. Because I'm an adult idolater. I'm worshiping. There's something behind that anxiety, isn't there? I'm worshiping or trusting in something else as sufficient and not Christ. How? Can I be anxious about the fact that we're just changing locations? Except that I do not believe deep down. I am not focused on the fact that the lamb who was slain is on the throne. Constantly interceding for me. And that his glory is my hope and my treasure. Not what I think I can work out in my life. Do you know why I slip into fear and anxiety and, well, I've never been depressed, but if I was, depression? Do you know why we suffer with those things? Because Jesus isn't at the center of our lives. We don't ultimately believe that he's on the throne and that what matters is him. We don't ultimately believe that this event that we just read, that this event is our hope, that this event is our song. We do not believe that when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he screamed the scream of everyone who will ever be damned in our place. We don't believe it. I'll give you an example that hits all of you, whether you have anxiety or not. One that hits everybody. The way we treat the Lord's day. You guys know what I mean by the Lord's day? I'm talking about Sunday. Right? People want to get into Sabbath issues. We're not going to talk about that today. The Lord's Day is Sunday, clearly in the Bible. That isn't a Roman idea in the 300 AD time period. That's when the apostles worshipped. But the Lord's Day is a reflection, and the way we treat it is a reflection of how Jesus has lost center place in the church. A recent poll was done. Um, I think it was Pew who did it. It was either Pew or Gallup, one of the two, did a recent poll. And I have it on my computer, but they talk about church attendance habits of various groups of people in America and beliefs that they have. And and they go into several different issues, the way they give offering and the way they how much they believe what their church teaches is true and all these things. And um, what was really astounding to me was that when they did the study. 
over 50% of those who profess to be evangelicals, Christians, those who believe the gospel, over 50% did not consider it worthwhile to attend church on a regular basis. In fact, usually once a month was, was um, fairly heavy church attendance. Now, did you hear the way I stated that? Didn't seem to be worthwhile. Not, they did not ask them, do you think it's a duty or the Bible commands you to attend church on a regular basis? But does it hold much value for you to do so? And uh, most of them said no. How often do you really think about your whole week, Monday through Saturday, as a preparation for this day? Really? How often do we think about that? As a preparation for the day that we will gather as the body to corporately worship the Lamb who was slain. I mean, let's be honest. Nobody is saying TGIS. Thank God it's Sunday. Are they? Everybody's saying TGIF, right? Thank God it's Friday. Why? Why is this the case? Why is it that family priorities, work priorities, athletic events, or anything else ever takes precedence in our hearts and our minds over corporate worship on the Lord's Day? Why is that? It's because the Lord isn't central. The answer is easy. We fail to realize that our King Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. We take him lightly. We think other gods, events, priorities, have more to offer us. Right? Than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ does. Did you hear what I said? We think they have more to offer us. See, far too many people think of corporate worship on Sunday as primarily a duty. And don't get me wrong, it is at least that. At least that. But it's so much more than that. It's like reading your Bible or praying. That's a duty. Yes, it is. But so much More than that. Sunday morning is the time when God's people come together to receive the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as he blesses us through his word and prayer and the Lord's table corporately. It's the place you come for the water of life. If you're not coming here thirsting for Jesus' grace, And if you're not desperately thirsty every week, then you're trying to quench your thirst with water from other cisterns. Cisterns that don't satisfy but kill. Oh, they taste sweet. But when they go down, 
they're rotten. In other words, we're not a culture that's longing for, looking to, or desperately seeking for Sunday worship because, because we're not a people who are spending the week focused on our King. That's why. Our hearts and minds are focused elsewhere. We either never understood the glory of our Savior and His cross, or we've too easily forgotten it. Jesus is what everything is about. Everything. Think about that. Everything is about Him. What else matters? How does anything, anything ever stack up in my life above Him? You know how it happens? Because I don't focus on Him. I am relentlessly focused on me. Why does Paul preach that only, why does he preach only Jesus and Him crucified? Why does he say, I boast only in the cross? Why does he consider his life worth nothing or rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ and him crucified. He does so because he understands that the whole story of human life is the story of our Savior and King Jesus. It all culminates in him. I want you to hear that because we're like people with blinders on, aren't we? We are running around life going like there's a mirror right in front of us in our hands going me, me, me. Me, aren't we? Me, me, me. So he goes, it's about Jesus. How does he help me? It's about Jesus. Let me open my Bible and read. This is a lot about God. This isn't very relevant to me. We get done with the sermon. He didn't give me any points of application. What am I supposed to do? We talked about Jesus the whole time. How is that helpful to me? You know what? I'm going to give you no application today. None. Not one point. Nothing you can walk out of here and do. Nothing. You have nothing to do this week. You have no assignments as a result of the sermon. None. No application. It's just going to be about Jesus. That's it. I'm going to give you five points about Jesus. Five arguments as to how Christ and him crucified is a center of the whole story. Okay, that's what I'm going to give you. And you're going to say, all of those are about him. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You know, Luther used to say this, that our hearts are, he said, they're curvatus in se, which means they are curved in on themselves. Our hearts are curved in on themselves, aren't they? And God has to come and turn it out toward him we call regeneration or being born again where the god of this world has blinded our eyes hasn't he and god opens our eyes so that we can see the gospel of what the gospel of how god makes me healthy wealthy and wise so that we can see the gospel of how god does great things in my family the gospel of how God saved my marriage. The gospel of how God gave me principle, good principles to be a good employee. 
the gospel of how God said that we should elect John McCain and not Barack Obama? What? Is that the gospel? No, the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's the gospel. That's what God wants us to see. So five ways that Christ is a center. One, only Jesus and him crucified fulfills the covenant with Adam. Only Jesus and him crucified fulfills the covenant with Adam and Adam's violation of it. Adam was God's people in God's place, the garden, under God's rule and blessing, wasn't he? He was commanded to keep God's law perfectly, and he gave several, was given several commands, none of which he seemed to complain about except one. You know, be fruitful and multiply. No complaints from coming from Adam, right? Don't eat that fruit. Now we've got a problem. He ate the fruit. Some call this violating the covenant of works. In other words, God made a covenant with him. And it's talked about in Amos that he violated the covenant. God made a covenant with Adam. I will bless you. You will be my people in my place. But you must not eat fruit from that tree. And Adam violated it. Adam violated that covenant and the curse came upon mankind, didn't it? And and I want you to go, you stop and go, Adam sinned, he ate a piece of fruit, and condemnation came to all mankind. And we stop and we say, you know, what's this cross stuff all about? And really, how bad is my sin? I mean, I commit little sins. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. My sins are small. I have a little bit of anxiety. Really? Is that a big deal? Jesus died on the cross for my anxiety? Yeah. You want to know how significant your one little sin is? One man sins and all of creation is wrecked. Hear that? One sin. Tsunamis take out 250,000 people in one night. Tornadoes kill Boy Scouts. Floods ravage cities. All because Adam ate that fruit. You want to know how horrific one sin we commit is? It's that bad. It destroys humanity. And it destroys God's creation. One sin is so bad that it requires the eternal God of heaven to send his son to be killed for it. Only Jesus can do that. Adam and all mankind with him as a result of his sin were no longer God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. 
is holy. He cannot relate with lawbreakers like us. However, God promised that he would send someone who would reconcile our relationship with him. And he said this person would crush evil and this person would pay for our sin. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. That the seed of the woman will arise and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. The king will come. The serpent crushing, evil destroying king will come. And in the process of destroying evil, he himself will be killed. However, in order to be that person, he had to keep God's law perfectly, didn't he? He had to fulfill the covenant of works that Adam failed to, didn't he? This person was Jesus. It can't be any other. Do you know of any other man who lived a whole life without sin? If he had sinned, he would have deserved the cross. No one's ever been perfectly obedient to to God except Jesus. He's it. He's the only person capable of being the second Adam. You wonder, why does the New Testament refer to Jesus as the new Adam or the second Adam? It's because he will fulfill the covenant that the first Adam failed to. My son, he's seven years old. He gets this. We ought to get this. The other day he walks out and declares to Isaac in the driveway. Isaac was walking up to our house and Jared walks out into the driveway and declares to Isaac, Isaac. And I'm going, I wonder what he's going to say. Did you know that Jesus is the second Adam? And I was like, dang, that's good. I didn't even think I knew that until seminary. <laughs> he gets it. Jesus did what Adam failed to. As the only sinless man, he is the only man who could ever die for the sins of others. We can't do it. Jesus is the only man who could fulfill the covenant God made with Adam. And he's the only man who could take the penalty for violating that covenant upon himself. So only Christ and him crucified fulfills the covenant with Adam and the violation of it. Second, only Christ or Jesus and him crucified fulfills the covenant with Abraham. The only one who fulfills a covenant with Abraham. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And further, that through his descendant would come one who would bless all the nations of the earth. But Abraham and his descendants were sinners, weren't they? And they violated God's covenant all the time. Yet they remain God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Why? Because of God's desire to keep the covenant. That's why. They violated the covenant all the time, yet God overlooked it for Jesus' sake. Did you just hear that? They violated it all the time, yet God overlooked it for Jesus' sake. I'm going to read from you from Romans 3 in case you weren't around for this sermon or forgot it. Romans chapter 3. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but listen. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now listen, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why do you do this? This was to show God's righteousness. Why does God have to show he's righteous? Why does he have to kill his son to show he's righteous? Because, listen, in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, God passed over the sins of Israel. And by Israel, I mean those who believed, those who were look, looking forward to the Christ. He passed over their sins. And so when Christ paid the penalty, he showed God's righteousness. And paying the penalty for those whose sins were passed over formally. Only Jesus could do that. God's justice obligated him to exercise his wrath. But he was patient with them. He overlooked their sin. Because he knew that the seed of the woman. The seed of Abraham was coming. The one upon whom his wrath would ultimately be poured out. Even Abraham knew that the fulfillment of the promise was coming in Christ. Jesus tells us in John chapter 8. Which I don't ask you to turn there. But Jesus tells us in John chapter 8. That, Jesus, that Abraham, he says this of himself, Abraham looked forward to my day. He saw it and was glad. Hebrews tells us that Abraham lived in the land that God had given him as a sojourner, as a pilgrim, as someone who didn't belong. Why? Because he knew he was looking forward to the heavenly city whose architect and builder was God. Jesus is the only person who can be the descendant of Abraham to which he looked in faith. Jesus and him crucified is the only possible fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the world would become God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Third, only Jesus and him crucified fulfills the covenant with Moses and his violation of it. Only Jesus and him crucified fulfills the covenant with Moses and his violation of it. Look, Israel was sinful, weren't they? God is delivering the Ten Commandments and they're down worshiping an idol. They're complaining all that they're so much like us, it's unbelievable. God delivers them and they're like, man, maybe you should just take us back. It was good back there under that slavery. We're just like that. He freed them from Egypt as his sons, but ultimately the only son of God is Jesus. He's the true son. He, Jesus, is the lawgiver and the law keeper. Did you hear that? Jesus himself said this. I didn't come. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I didn't come. To abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. How did he fulfill the law? Two ways. He fulfilled Moses' covenant in this way. 
He kept the law in every respect. That's the first way. Second, he paid the penalty due to man for the violation of the law. No one else could perfectly keep the law of God and no one else is therefore worthy to pay the penalty for our sin. Fourth, and I'm moving fast because I want to get to the last covenant. Only Jesus and him crucified fulfills the covenant with David. Only Jesus and him crucified fulfills the covenant with David. God made a covenant with David that his son would establish his throne as an everlasting throne. And no one but Jesus can be the eternal king. He's it. Only the God man can do this. I am so tired of hearing about how there's a possibility of other saviors in the world. Oh, well, if you're a sincere Buddhist or a sincere Muslim, or if you're a sincere Hindu or a sincere whatever, you could also be saved. What? You want to talk about sincerity and faith? Real, life-giving, sincere faith? Want to see it on display? Muhammad Atta, when he flew that plane into the Twin Towers, that man had faith. Is that virtuous? He believed and he put his faith on display for the whole world to see. Was that man saved? He was sure sincere. Sure sincere. He was not saved because he denied the eternal king of kings. Hear me. If your sincere faith is in an idol, that faith is not a virtue. That faith is sin. The Bible calls it idolatry. Jesus died to pay for idolatry, not to encourage it. He didn't die so we could go around the world compassionately saying, Jesus died on the cross to encourage you to be sincere in your idolatry. The problem in the Old Testament when the Jews were committing idolatry wasn't a lack of sincerity. The problem was their faith was on the wrong king. The king must save the members of his kingdom. No one else can do it for him. For the Bible is clear that the king must lose his own life to save his people. The promise starts in Genesis 3.15 that he has to himself die. And it continues through to Isaiah's suffering servant, Isaiah 53, doesn't it? Well, he'd be stricken for our sin, right? Further, we're told in Acts 2 that when Jesus died and rose again, he went from being the suffering servant of Isaiah to being the resurrected and glorified Lord. Peter preaches that. That's what he preaches at Pentecost. Jesus is both the Savior and judge of all men. He's the king who sacrificed his own life to save the subjects of his kingdom. That's why it's so powerful when the Pharisees yell at him on the cross. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he saved himself, he would not have saved us. Do you hear that? By say not saving himself, by letting himself die, he saved 
us. That's the irony in the Pharisees mocking. Fifth, only Jesus and him crucified fulfills the new covenant. After Israel had gotten to the promised land, they went through several fluctuations of being faithful to God and of breaking God's covenant. Just like us, right? We're faithful and then we're not so faithful. Then we're faithful. And they did this. They came into the promised land. They were faithful. They weren't so faithful. Judges, different judges came and delivered them and ruled them and et cetera, et cetera. And they came through. Eventually they got a king. They went through times of being faithful. They went through times of being unfaithful. They had various kings who ruled over them. Finally, their unfaithfulness, God got fed up with. And so God exiled them. Nebuchadnezzar, he appointed Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to come in and to take Israel out of the land. They were out for 70 years. Some of them came back after that 70 years. And God promised, I will establish a new temple I will establish a new kingdom. I will have a new king who will sit on the throne forever. But Israel never saw themselves return to the glory that they thought they were going to have. Never saw it happen. In the middle of all that, there were prophets. Prophets before that exile telling them, repent or an exile's coming. And because it's going to happen... God's going to send a redeemer, a king. He's going to do it during the exile. Same sort of prophecies after the exile. Same sort of prophecies again and again and again. They were told of a day when all the people of God would be regenerate. When all those in the nation would be believers and would have God's law in their heart. They were told of that day. Look, it's always true, it's always been true that God's true people, his true Israel, had the law in their hearts. It's always true. It's in the Psalms. They were believers. But many in the nation, many of the physical Jews were not true Israel because they did not believe. They weren't born again, as we say it now. However, they were told that a new day is coming. It's a promise. A new day is coming when God would make a new covenant. A covenant that would bring forgiveness of sins and that everyone in the covenant community would be a believer and they would all be born again. Everyone. Jeremiah prophesies this in Jeremiah 31. And I'll read it to you quickly. Jeremiah 31, 31. In the world did I go? There we go. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with those of the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. 
It's a new covenant promise. And then we get this picture in Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 22. When Jesus is in the upper room before his death. And he says this. Luke chapter 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, he, that being Jesus, reclined at a table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. I want you to hear that. He took a cup. And when he given thanks, he said, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them and saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten saying, this cup is poured out for you. For, for you is the new covenant in my blood but behold the hand of him who betrays me is at the table for the son of man goes as has been determined but woe to that man by whom is betrayed and they began to question one another which of them it could be who's going to do this hear what he said here's the cup of the new covenant in my blood here it is drink from it jesus was offering them to drink out of the cup of promise here's the cup of promise Here's the cup of the forgiveness of sins. The cup of blessing. Drink from it. How could he offer that cup to sinners? Isaiah clearly says that when you drink from the cup of sin, you will drink from the cup of God's wrath. Did you hear that? When you participate in sin, you will certainly drink from the cup of God's wrath. And yet, what does Jesus say at, the new, at this table? Drink from the cup of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins. And what do we hear him go on and say? How can we not drink from Isaiah's cup? Why do we drink from this? Look what he says in verse 39 of the same chapter. And he came out and went as he was, was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What cup? The cup he was about to drink. Isaiah's cup of wrath. Remove it from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he, fa- he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Do you hear this picture? Jesus offers his people the cup of the new covenant in his blood. Cup of forgiveness, sinners. Cup of blessing. And he knows that the only way he can do that is by him drinking from the cup 
of God's wrath in our place. Jesus exchanged cups with us. We're supposed to drink from the cup of wrath, not him. But he did it. So we can drink from the cup of the new covenant. See what you do every time you come to communion, Lord's table? Every time you come here, you remember that Jesus drank the cup you deserved. So you can drink from the cup that he deserves. The cross is the bringing together of the wrath and the grace of God. It's why Jesus says both of these things. It's why he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because at that cross, the wrath of God was exercised on him. And he screamed what every man, woman in hell will scream for eternity. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that those who believe won't have to. So that instead, those who believe can sing. Do you hear that? C.J. Mahaney actually said it this way. Jesus screamed the scream of the dam for us so that we can sing the song of the lamb who was slain forever. You hear that exchange? Jesus screamed so we could sing. That's the king of whom we speak. That's the king whom we pray to. That's the king for whom we sing. And that's the king because of whom we are gathered. He's what it's all about. Everything. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you that he fulfilled the covenant that you made with Adam. And that he fulfilled the covenant you made with Abraham. And that he fulfilled the covenant you made with Moses. And he fulfilled the covenant you made with David. And that he fulfilled the new covenant. Lord, we thank you that he took the wrath due to us upon himself. That he screamed what we should scream. That he screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we can sing Worthy is the lamb who was slain. I pray that we would do so well this morning. Pray as we come forward to the table for communion. That we would remember the exchange of cups that Jesus made with us. We would be eternally thankful. And that we would sing. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive glory and honor and power, and dominion, and that we would fall down before him in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. The band to come up, we're going to